Hello and welcome to Inequality Talks, a podcast from the volunteers of the Economic Equality Group at Mellemfolkelet Samvirke Aarhus. Mellemfolkelet Samvirke is a Danish NGO that works for a more and just sustainable world, collaborating with global partners worldwide as part of the ActionAid Alliance. I'm Elise, and today with me is Mai Hennig. Um, Mai is a very good friend of mine. We studied together in Vienna at the Vienna University of Economics and Business. We studied our master's in socio-ecological economics and policy. And before that, Mai was studying her bachelor's in media science and also working for a number of international organizations. So we're really happy to have Mai with us today. And Mai, do you want to say hello? Yeah, sure. Hello, everyone. Mm -hmm. And I'm, yeah, I'm really happy for the invitation to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. And and where are you right now? Right now, I'm in Brussels. Yes. So it goes without saying we're on a Zoom call. Um, <laughs> and right now you are represented by a microphone pole and two loudspeakers. So... But you also, I also have your picture up on my computer, so it's almost like you're here with me. I mean, it's very comforting for me to see your video. And I think we're used to this format already. I actually completely forgot that you could see me. <laughs> I forgot that my video is on, so I'm waving to you now. So we're here today to talk about the topic of the precariousness of online employment. So you have chosen to write your thesis on the precariousness of online employment and specifically on the precariousness of high-skilled labor on online employment platforms. So before we get into it, can you just briefly explain what an online employment platform actually is? Like, does that include people working on apps for delivery companies like Volt or driving for Uber? Or does that also include people working from home because of Corona? Mm. So employees who are working from home right now during the COVID-19 crisis, I would say falls rather under the broad category of online work or telework, telework or remote work. And as you said correctly, I've been focusing in my thesis on online platform work. And this kind of work is also known as gig work or crowd work. And I started to like the term online platform best because it includes the platform and this is what it is really about. So this kind of employment includes a third party. So instead of having just a binary employment relationship between an employer and an employee, mm. the third party that comes in is the platform. So online platform work is defined by a triangular relationship between the platform client, the platform worker, and in between the online platform. And the way it works is that clients can post jobs on the platforms and workers can take the jobs and deliver them either virtually through the platform mm. or in a specific location. So You mentioned Uber and Bolt, and they are actually examples of this kind of location-bound platform work. The work is managed and distributed by the online platform, but the job itself is bound to a location. 
So for example, in the case of Uber, the drivers have to pick up the customer in a specific location and drop off the customer in a specific location, ideally in the one where they want to go. <laughs> and Unless they're a really bad Uber driver. <laughs> And similarly with Vault, the food delivery worker pick, needs to pick up the food in a specific location and deliver the food to a specific address. So these are examples of location-bound platform work. So if it's not location-bound, then what is the other type of online employment platform work? Yeah, so the other type of online platform work is completely remote platform work on platforms like Amazon Mechanical Turk or Fiverr. So I have a feeling that these kind of platforms are not, yeah, this is not so much known by the broader society because mm. we're just not so much in touch with them as we are with this location-bound platform work. Mm. Um, because many of us have effectively already used them. Most of us have already gotten a ride with Uber or mm. have ordered food with one of the or through one of the food delivery platforms. Mm. Yeah, yesterday. But there seems to be less <laughs> awareness for remote online platform work. And it seems to me that they're more used by corporate clients. Uh, they, for example, instead of hiring employees start to externalize and outsource labor on these platforms. Mm. And what kind of work is that? My, my guess is that it's like copy editing and ghost writing. Is that right? It, it's a variety of jobs. It can be, <laughs> I think I, it can be anything. It can be really small and low skill tasks such as picture tagging or any other kind of click working, but it can also be very more complex tasks such as legal tasks or mm. um, IT in the IT sector, programming, software programming, um, or creative tasks, designing and architecture. So it's a very, very broad area. Um, yeah, it seems what like kind it. of work is located on these platforms. Hmm. So it seems to me like online employment platforms are sort of like the middleman that manages everything. They don't actually perform any of the work. They're just the middleman. Yeah. So they are also describing themselves as a mediator between clients and workers. And so these platforms are often owned by yeah, some kind of business. For example, the platform... Amazon Mechanical Turk is owned by Amazon, the company. And the business model works in the way that the company who owns the platform most often just takes a cut or takes a share of the payment that the client is paying to the worker. Hmm. So it seems like there are a ton of different tasks that you can actually do remotely and also location-based with this, with this online employment work. In your thesis, you made this distinction between macro and micro-tasking. Can you explain that? Sure. So the distinction refers mostly to the remote kind of platform work because, yeah, as I said earlier, there's a variety of, of work that can be done. So it kind of makes sense to distinguish between different kind of tasks. And... Um, I mentioned Amazon Mechanical Turk 
And Amazon Mechanical Turk, for example, is a very typical micro-work platform. And in this type of platform work, micro-work, one task that has been a bit more complex initially is fragmented into many tiny mini tasks. Now say um, that a hundred times fast. <laughs> so it's basically a fragmentation of the task and a standardization of the task. So basically you don't need a worker who has a specific knowledge to solve the task as a whole. But all the micro tasks, um, the standardized tasks are posted on the platform. And then individual workers, then also known as micro workers, simultaneously take care of them. And because it's just a fragmentation of the task, they're easier to solve. And then everything is brought together again. Um, yeah, and sometimes one job doesn't even last more than a few seconds or so. Wow, that's crazy. I mean, microtasking kind of reminds me of the specialization of labor in Fordism, but to like this extreme, extreme extent to which people are actually doing tasks that last a couple seconds, as you say. Yeah, exactly. Like it is a continuation of this division of labor and um, also of piecework where work is divided into different pieces and then you are also remunerated for the work outcome. So if a job only lasts for a few seconds, the workers most likely only get a few cents for it as well. And then on the other hand, um, macro tasks are the more complex tasks and often tasks that just can't be divided um, or fragmented more than that. For example, more creative tasks, or tasks for which the workers actually need a specific skill set to complete them. So macro tasks are maybe also in software programming and these kind of areas. Hmm. And I guess the argument in favor of this kind of extreme division of labor in, with micro tasking would be something along the lines of it makes things more efficient. Yeah, definitely. Like... Um, yeah, I mean, the the firm that is outsourcing the labor on the platform gets results basically immediately. And I guess we can criticize that kind of efficiency argument later on, which I assume that we will. <laughs> so, so this kind of work is basically all around us. I mean, you go outside and you can't like not see somebody on their bike driving for Volt. I mean, like... Like I said, just yesterday I ordered some some food online. And you've used this term online platform economy in your thesis, as well as this term, the digital capitalist service economy. And I think it's to illustrate this ubiquitousness of online platform work. So what do those terms actually refer to when you use them? Yeah, I think the work is all around us. And as you said, like the... Location-bound platform work is probably more visible to us and the remote online platform work is probably less visible for us. And there are so many, so many moments when we're actually confronted with this kind of work, but we don't know because it's invisible. Um, and the term online platform economy describes broadly the online platform labor market, but also would include commercial online platform marketplaces such as the Amazon marketplaces, so not only the Amazon Mechanical Turk or eBay. 
and on commercial marketplaces, platforms such as Amazon and eBay, sellers and buyers transact goods, and on online labor platforms, customers and workers transact services. So the digital capitalist service economy then describes, yeah, it's more like a theoretical term. It tries to capture how under capitalism, unpaid work is commodified, replaced by goods, which creates new kinds of unpaid work that is again commodified, replaced by goods, and so on and so on. So it's, it's kind of a circle. And one example that Ursula Hughes, one of the experts I have interviewed, uh, she gave an example for the replacement of services by goods. For example, we know that Uber is offering driving services. So this would be a service. And at the same time, Uber is heavily investing in self-driving cars, which is a completely different business model. Huh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah. And so what had happened was that Uber has created a huge surplus through the driving service business model. Um, on paper, these companies state that they don't make any surplus, but um, actually um, they do. And <laughs> Surprise. So... Yeah, so they have generated, a, or Uber has created a huge surplus through the driving service business model. And once this doesn't have any more growth potential to take this kind of rent out of this service labor, the driving service will be replaced by goods, so self-driving cars. And this follows the same logic as the commodification of unpaid labor such as doing the laundry. So in the past, first, mostly mostly women actually were washing the laundry by hand at home. So that was the unpaid work. Then the service industry of laundries emerged and capitalists made money or a lot of money from the service workers who were washing the laundry. Um, and then eventually a new wave of technology invented the washing machine and the goods replace the services. The washing machine replaced this kind of service economy. Hmm. And this is why in my understanding, Ursula Hughes is talking about the digital capitalist service economy now, because we have a new wave of technology, digital technology, that is commodifying certain services. And ultimately these services will be replaced by goods and so on and so on. So thanks for that uh, really good explanation of what the digital capitalist service economy is. I think you, you explained that really well. Um, I wanted to say that I myself have actually worked in lots of online jobs and that's probably because I've moved outside of my home country, which is the U.S. And finding mm -hmm. work in other countries is always really tricky and especially if you're not like really fluent in the language. So I've, for example, taught English online with this Chinese company, uh, I've delivered groceries, I've applied to a billion copy editing jobs, and okay, believe it or not, I've even voice recorded Japanese sayings for some language thing, <laughs> and you know me, my, I definitely don't speak Japanese, so <laughs> it was kind of bizarre <laughs> just sitting in my room, like, looking up Google Translate, okay, how do you say that? Um, so, like, Whatever it is, you name it, I've, I've probably done it or I've probably at least applied for it. So, um, so I guess it's a really common things, 
thing for immigrants to do when it's tricky to find work. Um, but who else is on these platforms? Like, uh, and where are they? Is this a is this a European phenomenon? Mm. There is a lot of research interest, but there isn't much research done yet to give really accurate estimations on how many people are actually involved on online platforms, how much they work, if it's their main income or rather a side income, and what their experiences are in general. So it's really hard to make accurate estimations. What I can say is that the business model of the online platform uh, and the online employment platform was actually kind of invented in the US by Amazon, if I'm not mistaken. God damn it, Amazon. So, yeah, at that time, Amazon needed in-house service to support data processing problems and decided to outsource the job in the form of microtasks to online workers. And after Amazon realized the potential of this business model, they launched Amazon Mechanical Turk in 2005. Mm. And their slogan at that time was, you've heard of software as a service. Well, this is humans as a service. Ew. <laughs> I hate Amazon. Seriously. That's what Jeff Bezos says. <laughs> I also hate Jeff um, Bezos. Um, yeah. For all you listeners, if you can avoid buying from Amazon, please avoid buying from Amazon. I'm sure you can agree, Mai. Right. I was, I'm thinking the same thing, if I can add that in between. Um, <laughs> so many surveys that are sent around among students, it's like, oh, I'm conducting this research for my master thesis also on. Among all participants... 10 euro Amazon vouchers are distributed or something. Yeah, that's true. Um, it happens all the time. And this is the main reason why I don't participate in these in these surveys, because I don't want to support that people buy Amazon vouchers as a gift to people participating in these studies. So, <laughs> so please think about other options. Yeah. They are like, open. I don't know, like a nice fruit basket could be nice or some flowers. Yeah, so true. Like there are so many ways to avoid it. <laughs> so you said that not much research has been done to get some real accurate figures for like actually the prevalence of this kind of online work. But as far as you know, what what is the share of the labor force um, working on these platforms? And also follow up question, do you predict that there will be more in the future? Hmm. Yeah, maybe I just um, I just want to add something to the previous question, like because I mean I've said that the business model comes or originates in the U.S. It's basically uh, invented by Amazon, but um, it's spread, and the workers who are now employed or working on these platforms can be or they are basically everywhere and nowhere in the digital realm and this makes it also so hard to apply any kind of labor regulations um, for protecting these workers and also um, yeah the the businesses are very clever about where they are registered and on a global level the trend is that online platform workers are rather situated in the global south and they work for clients in the global north. 
So for example, there are high shares of online platform workers in India working in the IT service industry and in the Philippines working in the administrative service industry on platforms. Um, but actually also the US and the UK have high shares of online platform workers. Hmm. I mean, that, um, that doesn't surprise mm -hmm. me that the US has really high numbers because of all the young people who can't get jobs out of college. Yeah, I think it, um, there is definitely also research that suggests that the institutional framework in a country has a lot to do with it. So if you don't have a lot of welfare protection, mm. such as in the US, you are more likely to try to find ways to generate income maybe through these platforms in times um, yeah, when you are under or unemployed. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's so hard to make estimations on who exactly these platform workers are and what their experiences are, also because they often remain invisible on the online platform, especially with regards to microwork. Um, workers appear under acronyms or as a number to clients. So client, clients nearly have the impression of working with a computer rather than a human. <laughs> so another term that has been coined by our favorite Jeff Bezos uh, from Amazon was artificial, artificial intelligence. So clients Artifi really have wait, the impression. Artificial, artificial intelligence? Yes, it's like artificial, artificial intelligence because clients nearly have the impression that artificial intelligence is working for them, whereas behind this, this impression of artificial intelligence is a human worker who is sitting behind a computer and doing the work. Oh my God, it's like an episode of Black Mirror. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and gross. yeah, on these microwork platforms, this is also, yeah, for me, quite a scary imagination. Mm. The workers are then also not really managed by human managers, but through code. And um, yeah, you can imagine a platform client, say a corporate firm in the automotive industry that is outsourcing standardized microtasks micro on an online platform. And basically, they're writing the code that is managing the workers. They're writing the code. So once this is done, post these kind of jobs to these kind of workers and so on. So there's a lot of invisibility involved in this kind of work. Okay, so with regard to the share of the labor force, what would you say is the amount of people working on these platforms? Yeah, it's also quite hard to say because, again, there's not enough reliable data available yet at the moment. Um, but the common estimation of the share of the total working population that is engaging with online platform labor or on online employment platforms is about four to five percent in Europe. So this is like an estimation by the European Commission. Hmm. And yeah, so that's not a lot. <laughs> and most of these, let's say 5%, use online platform labor as a side income. Hmm. So you could say, well, that's not really significant. Why bother? <laughs> uh, the thing is that the platform economy is rapidly growing. And a lot of companies, um, especially also car manufacturers like Daimler and BMW, show really high interest in outsourcing labor on online platforms because it is so cost-effective for them. They don't have to pay for long-term employees. 
and they don't have to commit to legal responsibilities of regulated employment relationships in social welfare states, such as paid holiday, paid sick leave, paying a share of employee social insurance contributions, etc. Um, yeah, on online employment platforms, they can hire workers for a job that lasts for about a few seconds and then fire them again. Or jobs that last for a few days, if you like. Um, and they have a lot of benefits. They have access to a very scalable crowd of workers worldwide. Uh, they don't have to comply with any minimum wages in the countries that they are situated. Um, and there will always be someone in the world who is going to do the job for really low payment sometimes, um, or actually most often once it's posted on the platform. So online platform employment is entering into competition with regulated employment models. And online platform employment seems to be a lot more cost-effective for firms, at least in the short term. So, of course, the development of online technology was pretty central to the growth of this kind of employment. I mean, since you can't have online employment without being online, that's pretty obvious. But um, what else has changed in the past couple hundred years, politically, economically, and, and socially, to, to kind of proliferate this online platform economy? Mm. Quite a lot happened. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it is important to talk about what we understand by this old standard employment model or what we understand by typical employment um, that is kind of used as a baseline for comparison here. Like if we have new forms of employment, we also have old forms of employment. And in general, the standard employment model refers to the kind of labor standards that emerged after World War II. So during that time, after World War II, stable employment, um, long-term employment, and with that, income security became increasingly the norm. Mm. Um, but not only this income security became increasingly the norm, also social security in the form of institutional social protection um, also became increasingly the norm. And there were different factors in play. Firstly, during that time, there was a very high labor demand that provided workers with more bargaining power towards their employers. Employers on the one hand were interested in the benefits of the stable workforce they had no um, recruitment costs and a stable employment relationship for consistent labor supply. And on the other hand, it was a victory for organized workers who had, for, who had really fought for these kind of labor standards for a very long time. So when we are referring to the standard employment model today, we refer to the employment standards that have been achieved in these years between 1945 and 19. 73. And so in 1973, there was the oil crisis. And after this crisis, capital was increasingly shifted from the public sector into the private sector. So we see the beginnings of the privatization. And as a result, the transnational corporations were expanding and accumulating capital. And they began, the transnational corporations began to increase their profit margin by outsourcing labor 
and employing a cheaper workforce abroad. So effectively, the global division of manufacturing labor was born at that time and resulted in increasing exploitation of workers in the global south and rising structural unemployment in the Western democracies. Hmm. In the 1980s, the neoliberal regimes were gaining power in Western democracies and pushed for labor flexibilization and deregulation. Um, we can say already before the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008, information technologies and digital technologies started to gain significance and basically set the stage for an international division of labor that is now also including the knowledge information sector and not only the manufacturing sector anymore. And today in the aftermath of the financial crisis, Actually, many workers are employed by large and powerful transnational corporations. And due to the digitization of labor, they are in global competition with workers across the globe. So I think a concept that is really interesting here is the Cybertariat by Ursula Hughes, which is obviously a wordplay with the Marxist term proletariat. Mm. And she argues that in the digital age, there's a new and growing class of precarious digital workers that she calls the cybertariat. Mm, yeah, I like this term when I came across it in your thesis. I thought it was really, uh, really catchy. Well, thank you for that excellent um, historical overview. Now I'm yes. thinking we can talk about, um, talk more about this precariousness of online employment. So in your thesis, you distinguish between three different types or, or factors of precariousness that online workers experience, which are legal precariousness, economic precariousness, and social precariousness. So let's take it one at a time. Can you first explain legal precariousness for our listeners? Mm -hmm. So I would start with that in general. In my thesis, I understand precariousness um, as a process of economic and social insecurity. So this is a concept by Robert Castel, a French sociologist who is talking of non-integration into labor as an economic activity that is providing economic security and non-integration into a social network that is providing security when security is not provided otherwise by a job or employment. So basically a social safety net in times when needed. And that can be family or on the individual level or social institutions on a more structural level. So in my thesis, I first look into online platforms, legal precariousness. That means to what extent labor law applies when online platform workers are in need for it or in need mm. for social protection. Mm. And how does it apply? I mean, how does the labor law apply to online workers? I mean, in in general, in general, we can say that labor law largely doesn't apply, especially when we talk about the remote online platform work, because that's not even such as in the case of location-bound online platform work that the worker is clearly situated in a certain country or so. But the worker, as I said in the beginning, is in a way everywhere, nowhere in the digital realm. So mm. which kind of labor laws um, or which kind of institutional, country-specific institutional framework should even apply to these workers? 
Um, and then on top of that, they are not defined as employees, dependent employees, to whom labor law usually applies mm. in Western welfare states, at least. Um, but they are defined as independent contractors. So basically on a self-employed basis. Yeah, I, w I was an independent contractor for this online Chinese company. And I mean, honestly, I'm shocked that the things they have done to me are legal. For example, they would just randomly uh, reduce my salary without reason. Um, another example, they would... Um, there was a limit to how many days you could take off. And so if you had mm -hmm. to take off more than the two days, literally two days that you were allowed per month, um, mm -hmm. you would have to pay for the class. But not only pay for the class that you were supposed to teach, but you would pay more than you would even get paid yourself for the class. And I mean, the list goes on of all of these things that, that were just like mind-blowing to me. Okay, so it seems like employers have kind of found like a like a loophole in the system with this independent contractor scheme. Mm -hmm. Then what does economic precariousness refer to? So in my thesis, the economic precariousness refers to the degree or the process of economic insecurity that online platform workers are subjected to on a structural level. So... Economic precariousness implies, for example, if workers do not generate enough income through platform labor to sustain their livelihood, or if income generation is prone to uncertainty to really high degrees. So, for example, if workers may have a well enough paid job today, but they don't know if they will get a well enough paid job tomorrow, that is the insecurity part of it. What then does social precariousness refer to? By social precariousness, um, in my thesis, I refer to workers' social agency, or in other words, their power and control over their work process. So they do fall under the legal category of independent contractors. The question is, is basically the legal classification as independent contractor, is that in proportion to their economic bargaining power and their social autonomy? So social precariousness, is that like kind of losing your autonomy? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's losing your agency and control where you are legally classified to have agency in mm. the labor process. Okay, so in a little bit of a, like a broader question that kind of um, we need to ask in this Inequality Talks podcast series, how do all of these negative consequences of online employment relate to inequality? Um, I think on a structural level, and this was the level that I was looking at, um, I think this is very closely related to social inequality because looking at the precariousness of online platform labor means to look at the underlying structural social inequalities and asymmetrical power structures and how they are reproduced on online employment platforms. And it's also like, I can't imagine that people with a lot of um, social mobility or economic opportunities are the ones looking for these jobs. I mean, I can also speak for myself. Um, this online work that I do is 
absolutely not ideal. So it makes complete sense to relate this back to inequality. Maybe yeah, I'm wrong. I mean, Maybe there are some. I think it's the same in the labor market at large. Like, um, as you say, like who works in precarious forms of employment. Mm. And there has also been research looking into this and suggesting that, okay, so online platform workers are defined as independent contractors. So they are basically self-employed, but the question is, are they voluntarily or involuntarily self-employed? And are they voluntarily or involuntarily taking all the socioeconomic risks that comes along with this self-employment and independent contracting? And there is some research that suggests that, well, on a structural level, many workers are basically forced into these work arrangements because they seem to be the only alternative to serious underemployment. So it's clear that there are some serious problems inherent in online employment work, especially when there's an online employment platform involved in the mix. Um, and it should be obvious, I guess, to everyone that something needs to be done about this. So is there is there research on this topic? And if there is, what what has that research mostly focused on and what kind of conclusions have been made? So... I mean, the problems that existing research in the area has already identified is that online platform workers are largely underpaid or really, really badly paid, which translates into economic insecurity. And additionally, like most of the financial risks are shifted from the clients and the platforms towards the workers. For example, workers take the risk of idle times in between jobs any investments in their recruiting, such as working on their portfolio or their performance rate on the platform, and all of that unpaid. Mm -hmm. And the risk of unpaid work is quite prevalent, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. On micro work platforms, customers can reject tasks without explanation. And as a consequence, the worker is not paid for having performed the task um, mm -hmm. because it was rejected. Mm -hmm. And that, on top of it, doesn't necessarily mean that the customer cannot use the outcome anymore. Customers still own the rights and can use the worker's output in that case, even if they have not paid for it. Unbelievable. Like, there are certain examples for that. And also on macro work platforms, um, their jobs are often tendered in competitions. Only the winner whose contribution was selected gets paid in the end, and all the others leave empty-handed. And again, the customer might own the copyright and use all the other contributions and might use them in the future. And that's um, what I mean by this is not ideal work. Yeah, I mean, I think it also exists to a certain extent in other environments. For example, a lot of people in the creative industry experience that, that you participate in design competitions or so, but I guess it, it might also be a problem in other working environments. You also reminded me when you were talking about workers incurring all the costs of the work without mm. being reimbursed. With working online, I was required to purchase all of the decorations. I had to decorate my surroundings as if it were a classroom. I had to buy a whiteboard, whiteboard markers, these kind of things. Of course, that was out of my own pocket. I couldn't pay, like, I had to pay for all of that. 
And on top of all that, this is the thing I wanted to say earlier, on top of all that, I had to sit in front of my computer without getting paid waiting for classes if I were scheduled for those hours because it was the mm. online employment platform which scheduled the classes. I didn't have any control over that, but still I mm. had to sit in front of the computer. And if I did that and I missed a class, again, I would get a fee. I would have to pay more for the class that I missed than I would get paid for the class itself. Actually double. But it's just true that like this kind of work, the workers incur all of the costs. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it goes even further on some, um, I mean, it goes very far in many ways, but on some platforms, you also have to buy premium accounts so, yes, so that you have yes. a better positioning on the website or you are more likely to get selected by a client to do a certain job and so on. Um, it's another form of investment in that, in that sense, I think. I've almost been sucked into that, actually. Um, and then mm. I was like, wait a second. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, and with regards to work as social agency and control, I have mainly looked into existing studies on algorithmic management of labor hmm. uh, on online employment platforms. And yeah, the problems that transpired there through the literature maybe also connect a little bit to what, what we've said right now. As I've mentioned earlier, on the platforms, workers are not necessarily managed by human managers, but by computers. And by that, I mean data-driven software algorithms. And the software collects the data on the workers. Um, For example, their task completion time, so how much time it takes them to complete a task, how often the work is rejected by the customers, Mm. how well they are ranked and rated by the customers, and so on and so on. And the interpretation of the data by the algorithm, algorithm or the translation into the algorithm has direct consequences for the workers. So where they are placed on the interface, um, but also to which kind of jobs they have access. Um, because if you're not ranked well enough, you might not have access to better paid jobs and so on. Mm. So they are very, very dependent on the algorithm. Mm. And the research suggests that the algorithm remains very opaque. So workers don't necessarily know how the algorithm works that is managing them. So many aspects of the algorithms are perceived as arbitrary and unfair by the workers. And there's this kind of information asymmetry between the platform who knows how the algorithm works and the workers who don't know how the algorithm works. Oh, God. Yeah, and the algorithmic management is biased in that it favors the platform customers. So customers rate the workers, but most of the time, not the other way around. And thereby, workers are incentivized to perform as best as they can, to get a good rating by the customer, to work quickly, efficiently, and have really good quality results. But the customers do not have to fear consequences for their behavior towards workers. So if they reject work unjustified, um, that doesn't necessarily have any consequences for them. And so if a worker feels treated unfairly by a customer, for example, if a task has been rejected, but the worker doesn't see why, 
there's no effective complaint mechanisms for the worker. No. The algorithm just takes the data and uses that, probably rather in favor of the platform or the customer than the worker. Right. Mm, it's really dystopian. Like if you imagine these kind of working conditions, not online, but in person, for example, the, the constant surveillance. Imagine if you had cameras on every single corner in your workplace i mean can you imagine how on edge you would be and not only that but your boss is watching everything you do but you don't know their criteria i mean there's definitely this side to it that i've also been more focusing on um there's also research su suggesting online platform work more as a utopia than a dystopia so there are actually also people who um Yeah, highlighting the benefits of this kind of work. And I think there certainly are also certain benefits or at least um, suggestions of what goes wrong in the traditional labor market at large for that this form of, um, yeah, precarious form of employment is emerging in that sense. Yeah, I mean, it paid my bills while I was studying and... <laughs> That's yeah, exactly. Good. Like I think it it offers just an accessible, flexible way of generating income. So let's move on to your study. Um, so I first want to ask you why study high skilled labor. So let me just reiterate the research title: the precariousness of high skilled labor on online employment platforms. Qualitative insights from expert interviews. Why high skilled labor? I mean, it's true that by focusing on the high-skilled sector, I did not intend to neglect the vulnerability and the precariousness of the lower-skilled sector on online employment platforms, because a lot of examples that I've been giving earlier were also explicitly about micro-work, which seems to be very much exposed to new forms of um, exploitation. But I was mostly interested in the phenomenon of structural precarization of the labor market. So while the low-skilled manufacturing sector was subject to precarization in earlier times, when the higher skilled knowledge labor sector was still protected in a way, um, I found it fascinating how the trend of structural precarization would evolve by digitization. So in times of digitization, knowledge work can be outsourced on online employment platforms too. And interestingly, in the digital labor market, many formal qualifications do not translate into higher wages anymore. Uh, what really matters on platforms are informal qualifications most of the time. And that means For example, a formally qualified IT worker in Denmark suddenly enters in competition with an informally qualified IT worker in India. And India has a lot lower wage, wage levels than Denmark. So I was interested to look into this development and its consequences on a structural level in the labor market. So your thesis project is... We could say an investigation into the legal, economic, and social precariousness of high-skilled labor on online employment platforms. You made qualitative interviews with experts, including trade unionists, social scientists, chamber of labor, chamber, cha oh God. <laughs> chamber of labor representatives, labor lawyers, and more. 
You analyze these interviews by conducting what seems like a very complicated and comprehensive content analysis. So, my what insights were these experts able to provide? Maybe as a background information, um, legal experts emphasized in the in interviews that we have labor regulation, and I was focusing on the context of Austria, like mm -hmm. employees are considered to be personally and economically dependent on their employers. So therefore, employers have more power and control over them, and the labor law is there to counterbalance this power imbalance. And the labor market is undergoing a general process of deregulation, but also the online labor platforms are avoiding the labor regulation by classifying platform workers as independent contractors. So as I've explained earlier already. So this is largely removing the labor regulation from like the public regulation of labor. But we shouldn't assume that labor is just deregulated on online employment platforms. But what the interviews suggested was that the online platform has a vested private regulation of labor on their platforms. So basically, they set up a, their own labor regulations in the terms of and conditions that you have to accept when you're entering the platform. No worker and no client can join the platform before they haven't accepted I mean, the terms and conditions of the platform. But surely they're reading all of the terms of employment, right? All of the tiny surely. little, like, 0.5. All font. the tiny, tiny clauses. I mean, I always do. I always read the terms of agreement before I enter Facebook. Yeah, me too. So I wouldn't think why. Shouldn't why be a problem, Mai. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. And I mean, even if you are reading them, um, I think a lot of it is in very complicated legal language and you wouldn't necessarily really understand what it's meant by it all of the time. Um, yeah, and so what is important to highlight here is that also high-skilled labor that could arguably have more bargaining power in the deregulated labor market where you have economic self-regulation between labor demand and labor supply is subject to private regulations uh, on online employment platforms. And the platforms mm. themselves, they claim that they are neutral, right. intermediate intermediaries um, or free marketplaces, mm. but in fact, they are heavily regulating the labor that is provided on their platform. And by their private regulation, this power imbalance that is there between workers and employers is even increased rather than mitigated in a way. So the online employment platforms, they're making their own rules, basically. And they are trying to, of course, um, portray themselves as being neutral. But in the end, they are profit-oriented companies that seek to reduce any kind of cost where they can. And usually that's going to be reducing the labor costs. So, of course, they're going to be making rules that don't benefit the workers. Absolutely. I couldn't have summarized it better. So here we already see how the legal precariousness of not being in the protective framework of country-specific labor regulations 
then is taken to the degree of economic precariousness when the online employment platforms making their own rules and thereby increasing the economic exploitation of the workers who are engaging on that platform. Um, and with regards to algorithmic labor management and social precariousness, as I've summarized it under this umbrella term, high-skilled online platform workers, if there wasn't already this whole private regulatory setup, one could argue if you have a specific skill, you have more bargaining power and you have more control over your work and it's kind of justified that you're self-employed um, in certain situations. But if you are subject to algorithmic labor management, this is heavily controlling your employment in the sense that also high-skilled platform workers are very dependent on good customer ratings because mm. new customers have a look at what past or previous customers have, um, how they have rated the worker and they rely on this. Um, and also the platform might only grant high-skilled platform workers access to certain jobs, again, if they have a certain reputation on this platform. So there's also not a lot of agency by online platform workers, um, even in the high skill sector. So I then tried to take the results of the expert interviews to a kind of next level and to analyze what that means on a structural level. And if we start by the social precariousness, so that is caused by the online platform algorithmic control mechanisms, um, you've mentioned the term, this permanent surveillance earlier. So workers just feel constantly surveyed and controlled by the algorithm, but they don't know when exactly they are surveyed and what exactly translates into the algorithm and how. And this leads to a behavior where workers are constantly controlling themselves, behaving and acting as if they were observed permanently and as, as if every action on the platform would have consequences on their performance rating, on their access to new jobs. So this is the kind of self-control, this like self-controlled elements of high-skilled online platform workers um, that is induced by algorithmic control mechanisms. And the online platform self-regulation causes economic dependence of online platform workers and their economic exploitation. And because it's all this like under this neoliberal narrative of self-employment, uh, entrepreneurship, the workers feel self-responsible. They feel like, okay, I'm classified as on a structural level, I'm classified as independent contractor or self-employed so it is in my own responsibility. If I have low wages and if I find myself in a precarious situation, it's my it fault. is ultimately my own fault. Right. Because um, I haven't worked hard enough or I haven't invested enough or I haven't performed well enough. It's all put on them mm. um, on mm -hmm. a structural level. And this comes from this narrative and this private regulation on these platforms that are hidden like 
it feels like it's the responsibility is just put on the workers in so many ways and also the responsibility of control like there is this algorithm okay but it ultimately um, incentivizes platform workers for permanent self-control and this is why this is even possible like otherwise you would ask yourself okay on a structural level why would workers engage on a platform for crazy low payment with super high work performance and i guess it also makes sense that there's this feeling of responsibility when you are sitting alone in your room on your computer without anybody else around you no co-workers no no person that's your supervisor i mean like it makes sense that you feel like your success is completely up to you because you're the only one you see. Yeah, exactly. Um, now that we've talked so much about problems, I think it would be nice to um, to kind of move to a brighter note. We like to end these podcast episodes on optimistic and goal-oriented um, notes. So I want to ask you, in your utopia... What would the world of online employment platforms look like? Or even the online platform economy? Do you think we need to eliminate this kind of work altogether? Or do you think we can make adjustments to tame the beast? I mean, I think to start with, I think it's unrealistic that online platform labor will be eliminated in the future. And mm. the way I understand it, it will continue to grow. And maybe that's not even necessarily a bad thing. So maybe we don't even want to eliminate this kind of labor because it also holds certain benefits. And it's it's maybe also a question of just redesigning it. And I'll come to that. Yeah, and although we didn't address them today, there are certain benefits and potentials for workers for sure. Hmm. And I think what's problematic is the underlying asymmetrical power structures and inequalities. So... After my research, my suggestion would be to address the problem from different angles rather than trying to fix the symptoms around. Um, yeah, for example, mere regulatory approaches try to fix the lack of online labor protection by designing new regulatory policies. For example, suggestions are that all online platform workers should just be classified as employees as a default because then labor law would apply for them in country-specific settings. A mere technological approach would try to fix the problem on online platforms through technological advancements, such as improving the algorithm and so on. And I think by themselves, they are just not enough. Um, and oh yeah, there are also some, like, I mean, there are unions that also work intensively on the topic mm. and they design policy recommendations, and also ethical codes of conduct for online labor platforms that online pl labor platforms can use voluntarily and use that, for example, as a fair crowd work or fair online platform work certificate. What really comes through to me is that we need more bottom-up approaches as well that are addressing the underlying power asymmetries and social inequalities in the current economic system. And for example, there is the idea of platform cooperativism developed by Trevor Schultz, and that promotes new ownership structures on online labor platforms. 
Um, so, I mean, maybe in my online platform label Utopia, that would be one thing to just have different ownership structures where workers have a lot more agency um, and a lot more ownership about the labor process on these platforms. But I also want to mention, or don't leave them unmentioned, <laughs> uh, certain activist projects that are driven and undertaken by online platform workers. And one very popular example is the Turk Opticon. The Turk Opticon is a browser extension that works for Amazon Mecha Mechanical Turk. And in that workers can watch out um, for each other and help each other because they are sharing information on the customer. So they're kind mm -hmm. of counteracting this one-sided ratings of customers or by customers of workers by also rating the customers and thereby warning other workers if a customer has a bad review for rejecting tasks or labor. So yeah, I think cooperativist approaches and also activist approaches are some ways to, to address the problems in a really sustainable or more sustainable way. And then I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't, yeah, I, I think online platform labor can also have a meaning for further thoughts about how we can also make the labor market, labor market ecologically more sustainable. Hmm. You bring up a lot of good points. Um, aside from sounding like something out of Star Trek, Turk Opticon sounds like a really good movement towards shifting ownership structures. And actually, I'm reminded now of a link that somebody sent me about this online platform company called Just Eat. It's one of these delivery companies. And in Denmark, it has um, Just Eat has just now collaborated with a labor union. And I mean, I think you're right. This this kind of work isn't going away. And especially with the growth of technology, the like the increase in global mobility, especially among young people who are looking to, you know, travel the world while at the same time still being able to like, you know, pay for things. <laughs> it's not going away. So I think I think you're right in that we need to start thinking of ways to actually change these ownership structures, change these control mechanisms to be more democratic because that's the only way and labor unions are going to be such an important part in this and i think it's always good to think about it's maybe good to think at solutions that you know don't only solve the immediate problems but would solve more problems than just one like as i would say also ecological problems um, tied to the social problems of employment and labor. So I think it would be really good to find ways how we can address them at the root. So it's not only going to fix one symptom, but it's going to really address the underlying causes and problems. Absolutely. And I think the more economic and social security people have, the less people will need to rely on this kind of work. So I think the online platform economy is a problem in itself i mean the way that it's designed now but i think what's really underlying it is other socioeconomic problems that need to be addressed as well these structural mm. problems that you've talked about yeah i absolutely agree 
Mai, I want to thank you so much for coming out here. It was really nice. Also really nice that you turned on your video camera so now I can look at you and say that. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really look forward to visiting you in Belgium when <laughs> when uh, we can finally travel again. Yeah, I mean, I also wanted to say I would have loved to come to, to Aarhus for this podcast. Um, <laughs> recording <laughs> it would have been so nice and it looks very professional as i said in the beginning like the setup that i can see through the camera my like, home studio you it's mean very impressive oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> i and, mean yeah it was a lot of fun for me to talk about it now and um, i hope that people can take something away from it i have to say i've learned so much myself through that mm, process through yeah. that research process so this is also just you know like a momentarily this is just a snapshot basically of where i am right now and i think there's still so much to learn about it so many new perspectives to gain on this topic so i think it would be really good if more people start to invest their research into this i've also learned so much and i'm sure our listeners have too As we mentioned at the start, we've got a lot going on in Mellenvogelit Sambiega Omus. You can come down every day but Sunday. Well, not now actually for Corona times. It's Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You can also get involved with our events, activities and campaigns and even running the cafe as a volunteer yourself. So go check out Instagram and Facebook to find out more about our cafe and our campaigns by looking up Mellenvogelit Sambiega Omus or following the links in the episode notes. And check out Podbean, YouTube, and other podcast providers for more episodes, interviews, and cool stuff. Details are in the episode description. Thank you guys so much for listening, and until next time, goodbye.